Good morning, church. Happy May Day. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you please join me in the Gospel of John chapter 20. John chapter 20. In a few moments, we'll put into this river of truth at verse 24 as we continue our series on the life of Christ. It was the summer of 2003. I was the evening speaker at an Iowa regular Baptist family camp located near Clear Lake. I had just finished my Wednesday evening message, gone back to my cabin, when suddenly I received an unexpected phone call from a young husband and father in the church I was currently pastoring, Calvary Baptist Church in Covington, Kentucky, right across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. Darren, his name, his wife's name, Jen, parents of three children, the youngest of which named Tess. She was three months of age. His voice was quiet and broken. Pastor, he said, I need your help. Tess has just died. I sat in stunned silence. He went on to explain, uh, my wife had to go out and, and do some errands, and I was tasked with babysitting, so I put her down in her crib for a nap, and I went to another room to do a chore, and when I returned, her body was lifeless. Come to find out later, she had died of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Darren was desperate. Would you come, Pastor? Would you encourage us? Would you officiate at Tessa's funeral? And I said, oh, Darren, my heart breaks for you. Of course, I'll come as quickly as I can. And so I made arrangements with the camp director, Phil, to speak first thing on Thursday morning, and they backfilled the rest of the week. And I raced to the airport to go back to Cincinnati. And in the sovereignty of God, I sat next to a beautiful young lady who was very conversant, very outgoing, very conversational. And we did the small talk thing. And so I said to her, so what do you do? She said, I'm a singer. I said, really? What genre of music? She said, contemporary Christian. Great. I said, can you tell me, what, what's the name of your group? She said, I'm a singer in a group called Point of Grace. I suddenly realized I was sitting next to somebody famous and wondering why she was sitting there in coach with me. But my mind went into brainstorming mode, and I said to her, could you do me a favor? I explained about Darren and Jen and their little tests, and I said, could you write a note of encouragement, a note of hope, of sympathy to Jen, and would you sign it? Would you autograph it? And she said, of course. God bless her. Well, after arriving in Kentucky, I delivered that note to Jen with an explanation. And I can honestly say that that note from that person at that moment became to her a literal point of grace. It was an extension of God with his skin on. All of us here have struggles, fears, trials we go through, and each of us needs God with skin on. Each of us needs a point of grace and quite obviously, there's only one person who can fulfill that, and his name is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. If you will, 
the extension of, of the expression of God pre-incarnate. The Word was with God, face-to-face -face with God the Father. The Word was God. The same was at the beginning with God. It goes on in verse 14 to say, and, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. As your counseling pastor, I regularly deal with the problems you bring to my office, and I am, I'm thrilled to do so, but I regularly have to urge you to turn to the Lord. The Bible says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4, 16. The verses I've just quoted from John chapter 1, of course, book end, one end of John, and today we're going to look at the end of John in chapter 20. We're going to look at the conclusion, that is minus the epilogue of chapter 21, and as I mentioned, we'll pick it up now in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, Thomas had a twin, a brother or a sister, he was not with them when Jesus came. Let me pause to interject. This references the previous five verses where Jesus had appeared the previous Sunday to the disciples minus Thomas. In all, Jesus appeared ten times after his resurrection. On resurrection day, he appeared five times. This was the fifth appearance to these disciples without Thomas. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, this is after the fact, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas was incredulous. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I, I'll never believe. Eight days later, which by Jewish reckoning would have been the following Sunday, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, shalom, be with you. Then he looks right at Thomas. Can you picture this in your mind's eye? Looking right at him. And he says, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I have to believe that Thomas followed that instruction and actually touched Jesus and faith was birthed within him. And he cried out this great exclamation, My Lord and my God. Again, to interject, the late R.C. Sproul said that this affirmation is probably the clearest and simplest confession of the deity of Jesus Christ to be found anywhere in the New Testament. Jesus is God. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And then a capstone to this book, why it was written, the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus did many other signs <clears throat> in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? Tell us, John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To this day, poor Thomas becomes the whipping boy for doubters. We even have a name for him. What do we call him? <laughs> Thomas thought the other disciples had seen a ghost the Sunday before, and he was freaked out. But we ought not to be too hard on him, because if you go back to that week before, as recorded in Luke 24, 
all the other disciples reacted exactly the same way as Thomas. Really. And in fact, in Matthew 28, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, they go up to the Mount of Olives, and he is ascended up to heaven. This is 40 days after the resurrection. These same disciples, this is what the text of Scripture says. Look, look at this. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some still doubted. Wow. Struggles with doubts and questions are normal stuff for Christians. But I've got good news. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof that what we believe is true and trustworthy. Jesus is alive. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. It proves that our sins really are forgiven. It proves that he does live in us, and it proves that he is going to come back in person for us physically, and we're going to be with him forever. That's the hope of God's people. So you ask, why does John alone, of all the apostles and the, the gospel writers, why does he alone record the story of Thomas? We have to understand, for one thing, that there was a heresy in the early church called docetism. It's from the Greek word dukao, which means to seem, which believed that Christ only seemed to have a human body, but really did not. This heresy believed that spiritual things, things you couldn't see, were, were good. But anything physical was bad. The body was bad, marriage was bad, sex was bad, food was bad. Read 1 Timothy chapter 4, you'll gain greater insights. As a result, they could not believe that the good Christ would have a physical body and still be good. So they denied the physicality of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, one late first century heretic named Serenthus taught that the spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but left him at his crucifixion. So John, the writer of this gospel, wrote some other New Testament books as well, three letters, three epistles called 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, as well as the last book in the canon of Scripture, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he wrote all of these books between 85 and 100 AD. He was the last of the writers of Scripture, and so he directly took on this heresy of docetism. And he addresses it in the first three verses of his first epistle, here it is, you can see it on the screen, and I want you to notice he, he encourages employment of their physical senses. He's talking about Jesus, that which was from the beginning, sounds like John 1, which we have heard, notice the senses, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that is, through Jesus, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Let me try to make this real to you. I'm going to call on my lovely assistant, I should say handsome assistant, Pastor Jared. 
Uh, this will not be a magic act. I'm not going to make him disappear. That would be cool, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm bringing him up because of his age. Jared is 33 years of age. Same age Jesus was during his passion and his ascension to heaven. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, in all honesty, Jared, I don't think Jesus looked a whole lot like you. Or for that matter, like most of us in this room, Jesus was Jewish. He had brown skin. I'm guessing he was probably fully a foot and a half shorter than you. You're a tall drink of water, buddy. <laughs> and even though he's a nice, slim guy, I'm guessing Jesus weighed a whole lot less than Jared as well. When Karen, my wife, and I went to Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, we've been there several times. One time we went with a tour guide, and I asked him, I said, so what was the average size of the Civil War soldier? And he said, 5'2 and 125 pounds. Hmm. What's interesting is that's the average size of the Jew in the first century, probably the size of Jesus. Now, I bring this brother up here because... Uh, He's physical. I can touch him. I can feel his muscles. Not very many. <laughs> <laughs> I can see him. I can hear him. Say something, Jared. Something. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what your dad believes about what we're going to look like when we are glorified and go to heaven. Well, um, yeah, my dad and I were talking about heaven one day, and he's talking about how we may be 33 years old when we're in heaven because in Philippians 3, uh, it says that we will be like Christ. Um, our, our physical bodies will be similar to, our, our glorified bodies, that is, be similar to Jesus when he was raised from the dead. So, Great. Yeah. So how many of you out there are 33? <laughs> hey, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> Let's give Jared a round of applause. Thanks for your help, buddy. One more difference between Jared and Jesus, quite obviously, Jesus is right now glorified, and still, he has scars in his glorified body. Someone has said we should only preach from our scars and not from our open wounds. I know what they mean, but Jesus did both. He preached from the cross, Father, forgive them, it is finished. And he preached from his scars with Thomas. He preached both ways. Why did Jesus leave scars in his glorified body? Was it for Thomas' sake? Probably, but also for your sake and my sake, for the benefit of really real recognizing he physically rose from the dead. Thomas saw those marks in the resurrected Jesus. He believed, but not before he doubted significantly. Thomas saw the evidence of the resurrected Christ, and then he believed. That would not be true of believers today. Nobody here in this room has seen Jesus with their own eyes. Uh, next month, my wife Karen and I will celebrate our 47th wedding anniversary. We're grateful to God for his goodness. And when we got married, we went to the local Bible college here in Ankeny, and the missions professor, Bernie Bancroft, gave us a simple little gift. It was a a framed picture that was blank, except for a portion of a verse at the bottom that was referencing Jesus. And it said this, whom having not seen, you love. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. That's us today. 
I want to spend my remaining time by talking with you about the kinds of doubts that even God's people have, and certainly unbelievers. Let me submit we have evidence for the resurrected Christ, even though we've not seen him, that there are three. Let me give you them quickly in order. First, there's the fact of the Christian church, which dates back to A.D. 32. It's worldwide in scope, quite obviously. It developed because of the work of God's children in turning the ancient world upside down for Christ. And here we are 2,000 years after the fact, a part of this same church, the Big C Church. Then secondly, there's the fact of the Christian day. Sunday is the day of worship for Christians. Its history can be traced back again to A.D. 32. The Jews, as you know, had worshipped for 1,500 years as per the Mosaic law on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, Shabbat, as outlined and explained in Exodus 20, verse 11, following the pattern of creation week. But that suddenly changed. In the book of Acts, the Christians started to meet on Sunday. What changed? It was the resurrection. That's why today, like we did two weeks ago, we again are celebrating, and we celebrate every Sunday, the anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we meet on Sunday. Thirdly, there's the fact of the Christian book. As I mentioned earlier, 10 appearances of Jesus post-resurrection. You see the names of some of the folks that saw him in person on the screen. 500 at once, 1 Corinthians 15. And they constantly referred to his resurrection as a basis for preaching forgiveness, for living so vibrantly, and for dying so willingly. Why would anyone die for a dead Savior? They, they wouldn't, quite obviously. There's no hope in that. And yet, according to church tradition, 11 out of the 12 disciples gave their lives as martyrs for Christ. They remembered his words from John 14 and verse 19. Because I live, he said, you will live also. Physically, you'll live again. Tradition tells us that the Thomas we're studying about today was so moved after touching Jesus, he answered the call of the Spirit and went to India as a missionary into the dark, deep recesses of that pagan country where he was murdered for his faith. And today, if you go to the marker near Madras, you will find a remembrance of what we call St. Thomas. He did that because he saw the resurrected Christ. He knew that death could not defeat him. He knew that he would live again. But I want to fast forward to where we live today in our generation. Regularly, it seems to me that we're hearing about uh, believers, I put that in quotes, who are deconstructing their faith and walking away from Jesus. You'll read about that through social media, some very high-profile kinds of people. And we ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? Well, it may be helpful to explain that there are four different kinds of doubters. You can write these down. First of all, there are temperamental doubters. One apologist called this congenital doubters. And for them, faith is not their first response. By nature, I have to confess, that's, that's probably me. People with my kind of makeup keep asking questions like, but what if? 
And I, I think Thomas fits into this category too. He was not a malicious doubter. He wasn't trying to deconstruct his faith. He just had a hard time believing without seeing. And if I can pause for a moment to just encourage you, when you encounter somebody in our church that's struggling and they have questions and they have doubts, follow Jesus' pattern and be patient with them. Yeah, Jesus did gently rebuke Thomas, but he was very patient and we must be patient too. Now secondly, there are rebellious doubters. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. They don't want anyone telling them what to do or how to live. As Jesus put it, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. At the heart of Abraham Piper's apostasy from his famous father's faith, I speak of John Piper. If you Google Abraham online, you'll find his podcasts, which were absolutely blasphemous in nature. I can only imagine the hurt and pain in John's heart over his son. Why is Abraham struggling? Yeah, there's some intellectual questions, but more than that, on one occasion, he honestly admitted, you know, I just really wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. I love John Piper, and I find myself on occasion praying for Abraham. And uh, I've had many of you talk to me about your own children and grandchildren. My heart aches for you as well. And right now, I just pray, Lord, would you be pleased to save Abraham? Would you be pleased to save the children, the grandchildren of the people in our church who agonize over those who've walked away from the faith? And would you do it for your glory, I beg in Jesus' name? You agree with me? Say amen. A third category of doubters would be wounded doubters. Some of you here today fit this category. These are people who have suffered great pain and they blame God. Why, why would God allow such a thing in my life? Let me say that we don't have answers to all of life's issues, but we must always compare the black backdrop of our confusion with the brilliant diamond of Calvary. God's love for us shines brightest at the cross when we keep our eyes on the man in the middle. Author Randy Alcorn, another man I, I love to read, just lost his wife of decades from cancer just about a month ago. Randy writes insightfully when he says this, however great our suffering God's was far greater. If you feel angry at God, what price would you have him pay for his failure to do more for people facing suffering and evil? Would you inflict capital punishment on him? You're too late. No matter how bitter we feel toward God, could any of us come up with a punishment worse than what God chose to inflict upon himself in the person of Christ at the cross? Again, as your counseling pastor, I know that many of you throughout this room are going through a deep water experience, and my heart aches for you. I don't have easy answers, but I can assure you God understands and cares. I want to help you bear your burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, but I, I do that best by committing you to Christ to wait upon him in his timing Wait on God. One of these days, he is going to jerk all of your question marks into exclamation points. 
And he's going to tell you why he did what he did. For his glory, for your good. I think in the church today, when we think about doubting Thomas, it kind of makes us nervous. We're not supposed to doubt. We're not supposed to ask questions. And the younger generation says, what's with this? Can it not stand up the test? You know, we, we live even in the church in a happy, snappy, clappy kind of culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only read the good psalms that are uppers. Did you know that 60% of the psalms are songs of lament? Sometimes the Bible is not always speaking at us. Sometimes it is speaking with us. You'll find in the Psalms people who are screaming at God, where are you? Why don't you do something now? Jesus was one of them. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Normal faith allows for honest questions. I submit that doubt and faith can coexist. And I love Os Guinness's quote, The shame is not that people have doubts, but that they are ashamed of them. Let's give room for honest questions and honest doubts. Finally, a fourth category of doubters would be intellectual doubters. As mentioned earlier, a lot of so-called intellectual doubters really just to cover for moral rebellion. And to that point, Scripture always commands us first to repent before we believe. So if you're struggling, you've got some intellectual doubts, let me challenge you to first take a hard look inside and let God expose what you've been into, what you've done against him, and begin with honest confession of your own sinfulness, and that will clear away the debris from the river of faith. Please don't make this too hard. Saving faith is a choice. John 7, 17, if any man wills to do his will, he will know. In the Gospel of John, the word faith never appears as a noun. It's always a verb. So what does that imply? That implies action, movement. It implies a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve, Joshua 24, 15. Choose to believe and you'll know the truth. Hey, listen, my friend, my doubting friend, there are millions of us who have chosen to believe and have found it to be true, transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're looking at one of them. I challenge you, put your faith where God has put your sin on the cross of Christ. Here it is, a verb. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. So now we come to the communion table. I want you to do me a favor today. I want you to play the role of Thomas, figuratively speaking. Today, in this moment, you're going to come as close to physically touching Jesus as is possible before he comes back from heaven. And while these elements of the Eucharist are not literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, they do represent the literal body and blood of Christ. And so this is meant to be a tactile moment, a visualization of the gospel. Indulge me here today. 
I think so often we blow through communion with little thought. I want to urge you to take that wafer and roll it around in your mouth and picture the body of Christ and use your senses. The body of Jesus was and is real. He's perfect, thereby qualifying to be a sacrificial atonement for our sins. But you need to know something else. In being perfect, he had righteousness which we needed. So theologians talk about double imputation. God imputes or transfers our sin to the sacrifice of the Savior. And watch this. This is glorious. And he, he transfers the righteousness of Christ to our account. Christ's death on the cross keeps us out of hell. His righteousness qualifies us for heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So today, when you drink the juice, relish the liquid with your taste buds. Remember, it represents his life does, his death, the payment for your sins. If you really believe on him, touch him today by faith, as Thomas first did with his hands and then did with his heart, and declare with Thomas, Jesus, you are my Lord, and you are my God. You are my point of grace. You are God with skin on. I'm going to pray, and then I want to urge you to immediately come and pick up the elements of one of these stations, which are all around this room, and I want you to partake of the elements prior to the countdown going all the way to the end. There'll be no further instruction from me except to ask you, when you sit down with the elements, to contemplate the reality, the physicality of Jesus Christ. Don't blow through it. Take your time. Use your senses. Stay in the moment. And when you are ready, slowly take those elements and give worship to Christ like Thomas did in John chapter 20. Remember, he said to us, do this in remembrance of me. So I'm going to pray, and uh, then I want you to come immediately, take the elements, and when we're finished with the countdown, Pastor Paul is going to come and lead us in a glorious final song called, Oh, Glorious Day. Father, I, I thank you for the story of Thomas in Scripture. I thank you that his example shows us that you are tender and patient with us when we struggle with questions. Honestly, sometimes we don't have answers to what's going on, and we don't pretend to know it all. So we wait for you to come through for us in your time, according to your plan, for our good, for your glory. Right now, we with Thomas say, Jesus, you are our Lord, and you are our God. And we thank you for giving yourself as a perfect sacrifice, giving us your righteousness. We employ our senses right now, slowly, deliberately, intentionally, because we don't want to just rush through this. We want this to be a sacred moment before you. We want to touch you the same way Thomas did. Help us, Lord, to give you glory, even as we partake of this ordinance which you commanded, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.